Where's that sound coming from? That's the finance office. Seriously? HR sounds like panpipes now. What's going on? Our new business software from the Access Group. It's given everyone more time for the jobs they enjoy, so now we're 40% more efficient. Wow, that sounds... Visit theaccessgroup.com.au forward slash working wonders to find out how great it feels when work works better. The Access Group. Software solutions working wonders. Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone to episode 70, a very special Halloween edition of Garden of Doom. This is the Halloween episode. And welcoming back in our award-winning poet and author, which I guess is a little bit redundant, Jennifer Sutherland, but since last she was on the show, which was probably about 10 months ago, she has won other awards, or at least one award. Um, and she's going to take us through a journey of hell in literature, um, and then time permitting, we'll get into a little media as well. But Jennifer, thank you so much for coming back into the Garden of Doom. How do you feel about that? I'm super excited. I hope that I am not entering the gates of hell by coming back to the Garden of Doom. Uh, it, we're adjacent. We, you know. <laughs> Limbo. Yeah, yeah. We, we occupy a lot of a lot of areas. We we have portals to many many areas in this swamp, this miasma we call the Garden. But yeah, so. Um, for the folks who didn't catch the other show, I, I believe it's like called 
poetry something and something oh my and it, it's actually one of my surprise favorite shows because i didn't know what i was getting into i know jack about poetry and i actually think that, that we made it really interesting mostly you um but made it really interesting i thought that was a really cool show so if people if you haven't checked it out go back and check that one out it was sort of in the middle of this strange arc that i was going through where i'm like listen, I only have like dudes on this show. I need to get some women on the show and, and like have a little bit of more, you know, uh, diversity here. And, uh, and of that arc, this, this was, yours was definitely my favorite show. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I try to find my guests where I can, but I, you know, I wanted to be representative to the extent, uh, practical. I mean, the garden of doom is not, is not going to be getting in like, you know, uh, I don't know. You know, some of your uh, Donnie and Marie aren't, com aren't coming on the, the Garden of Doom anytime soon. Though, maybe I could be wrong about that. You never know. So, how's your last 10 months been? Um, it's been good. I, I think probably relatively typical in terms of people being alive during pandemic times. But it's it's been good. And you did win an award this year, didn't you? I did. I um, I was uh, a poem of mine was selected for inclusion in an anthology called Best New Poets. Um, was selected by a poet by the name of Kava Akbar, who is um, like super amazing and talented, and he selected my poem um, to be included in this anthology. So that's great. Well, congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. Well, you know, I've often said that I'm good luck for other people, not necessarily for myself, but but for others. I'm sure it had nothing to do with your hard work and talent. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, so we're going to take a little journey through hell in literature because we figure hell is a very Halloween-y subject or a Samhain, as I'm told it's properly pronounced in the uh, Gaelic and Celtic. But uh, if anyone didn't check out the the show on Halloween last year, I actually re-released it a couple weeks ago, redropped it. So we actually go through a um, like a historic take on Halloween, its origins, and surprisingly enough, it, uh, yes, Halloween is mostly uh, European-American in origin, but similar types of ceremonies take place really all around the world in different cultures, and there's a reason for it as well, but uh, we may or may not get into that, but check out the old show and you'll get the history, at least the first 15 minutes is, is very historic, and then we, uh, when I say we, it's the Inhuman Experience fellows, Bobby Anthem, Bobby Blades, and we talked about uh, Lovecraft Country and um, I forgot the Watchmen uh, and a few other scary things that were more current at the time. But uh, still probably good to check that out. And if you're interested, but certainly the first 15, 20 minutes or so was all Halloween. All right. So, Jennifer, take us yeah. take us to the beginning. Tell, tell us tell us about hell and literature. Uh, well, gosh. Um, Sounds scarier. sorts of, of ideas of what hell might be, um, and we, we tend to think of them, at least here in the United States, as in, in sort of very Western and Judeo-Christian terms, um, but those terms have not always held through for all cultures, and I think um, most cultures have ideas about what might happen to us after we die. We all want to know where we're going, if we're going anywhere, and what we're going to look like, and what our life is going to be like once we die, and and um, there are all sorts of, of stories and mythologies and ideas um, surrounding um, what happens to us then. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's one of the 
big three questions, right? Yeah. What, what, uh-huh. what happens to us? Maybe number one. I mean, where do we come from is a pretty big one, but I mean, you know, we, we sort of come. So maybe where do we go next might even be the number one question. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know, you know, where you want to start. I don't know if you want to start sort of chronologically in writing or in what's maybe most prevalent going back to forward. You're, you're going to lead. Uh, you're going to be like our Virgil here. Um, see, that, that was uh-huh. that, that's a little spoiler. That's a little spoiler. Virgil doesn't get to go to heaven, unfortunately. Well, the show has nothing to do with heaven, so uh, that, that's a, that, <laughs> that's fine. That that that's maybe another year. That that's uh, I don't know, different holiday. Um, maybe uh, Easter. I don't know. Uh, that that that's, mm-hmm. that seems more like a heaven kind of show. Um, so yeah, I you know I I I know that there's references going back to you know Sumerian like Gilgamesh, mm-hmm. um, which is probably the oldest writing. I know people would probably say the Bible, but the Bible, as we learned last week in Censoring God, that wasn't written nearly as old, and there were lots of things written before, uh, even in in the European sphere, such as Greek mythology and tons of oral tradition all over the place. So I'm going to let you decide. I mean, we could follow the outline that you submitted if you like. That's probably the easiest way to go for me, but we don't need to do what's easy for me. We need to do what's easy for you. Well, I mean, I would say... There, there are all of these sort of proto-mythological stories, um, and maybe the oldest one to start with is the story of Gilgamesh and Inanna. Um, so there are all of these mythologies that involve a hero of some kind traveling to the underworld and then being able to come back and being able to tell us about what it looks like. And the interesting thing about the story of Gilgamesh and Inanna or Ishtar, sometimes she's called Ishtar, um, is A, she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually in these, these, these mythologies, it's a man who's traveling to the underworld and coming back. So um, in this very ancient story, it's a woman who does it and comes back. And, um, and when she comes back, she, she is able to bring sort of information about what happens and her coming back has all sorts of consequences for her people. Um, and the, the story of Gilgamesh in general is, is, is kind of a story of reckoning with, uh, with death, of, of being mortal and wanting to be able to not die. And Gilgamesh, who is the king in that scenario, um, spends part of the story, A, mourning his, um, his great friend who has died and trying to find this magical talisman that would let him live um, into immortality. And he almost has it. It's one of those stories where it's sort of like in his hands um, and then like a terrible outfielder um, loves <laughs> the catch and drops it and the game is lost for everyone. So that's what happens to, to Gilgamesh in that story. So, sort of like a sad Icarus, I guess. Almost mm-hmm. almost got there. So Inanna or Ishtar. Now, if, if I'm not incorrect, isn't Ishtar also said to be Isis and then maybe later on Athena as well? Or, or am I confusing goddesses? We think so. Um, and there are people who who really sort of specialize in um, archaeological mythology. Um, but yes, we think that maybe this is a goddess who in these different cultures developed into different people. Okay. And it's definitely not the movie Ishtar with Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. And... It is not, although that is not that terrible a movie. Hmm. I would say if, if you have not given Ishtar a chance, maybe give it a chance. 
Okay, so we go from one epic to another epic uh, failure, at least in the box office. I've never seen the movie Ishtar, so I can't comment on that. But I wasn't actually planning on it, but maybe I will now. I've, I've been going through a horror movie binge, like a lot of people, and most of them are disappointing me terribly. So how bad can Ishtar be at this point? Um, mm -hmm. So, all right, so Inanna or Ishtar went into hell, um, and you indicated it was very similar to the uh, story of Persephone. Or Persephone, yes. sorry. Yes. Should we go into um, that one next, or, or no, sure. we'll get to that when we get to it. Well, Persephone um, is associated with Greek mythology, which is, I mean, of the mythology, the, 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 the mythology literature that I am familiar with is probably the one that I am most familiar with. Um, and the Greek idea of the underworld, or Hades, um, the name for the place sort of became synonymous with the name of the god who was responsible for it was very different from our idea, at least now, of what hell might be like. Um, and Hades was really, in Greek mythology, just the place where you went where you died. It was kind of a neutral. Um, yeah. You didn't necessarily want to die. I mean, you'd rather stay where you know where you are and you've got your friends around you and all of that kind of stuff. But it wasn't necessarily a place to go to be punished. It was just where you went when you died. And... Um, the story of Persephone is that Persephone was the daughter of the goddess Demeter, who was the, the goddess of fertility, of the harvest. Um, if Demeter was in a good mood, you had a good harvest that year, and you could eat over the winter, which was a good thing. You wanted to keep Demeter happy. Um, but unfortunately, Persephone um, was a good-looking young woman, and she was out um, picking flowers, I think, in the field. And Hades, the god of the underworld, spotted her and decided that this was the woman that he wanted to have for his wife. And he um, kidnapped her and took her to Hades. Um, and there was a sort of an epic journey involved um, in an effort to retrieve Persephone, to bring her back up to um, the earth, the surface of the earth, and uh, all sorts of arrangements and bargains were made to try and make that happen. Um, and she, it, the decision was made that she could come back if she had not eaten or drunk anything in hell. Um, and unfortunately, she had by then eaten a single pomegranate seed, um, I guess, she was, you know, at a certain point, you get hungry. Right. Um, and and, and nothing like a pomegranate seed, seed to hit that uh, that empty place. It, yeah. Um, I mean, a pomegranates are something you have to work for, too. So she really must, she must have been very hungry. Maybe not um, in Hades. Sorry? Maybe not in Hades. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe part of, maybe part of hell is, that's all you get, is you have to eat pomegranates. Yeah, soft pomegranates, but, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> She was not allowed to return because she had eaten this pomegranate seed. And then you have this kind of great compromise, which I think um, reflects a little bit of how politics works uh, in all human relations, which is they decided that, that um, Persephone would be able to come and live with her mother, Demeter, during the spring and summer months, um, but would have to return to Hades during the winter. And for that reason, that's why the winter is cold and desolate and um, nothing grows. And then when Persephone is, is back with her mother, everything is uh, warm and fertile and there's lots to eat. 
And who was the hero in that story that went down to go try to retrieve her? Oh, is that Heracles? Does Heracles bring back Persephone? I thought it was. I thought it was not Heracles. Um, maybe was it maybe Perseus or Theseus? It, yeah, it may have been one of those. I'm I think not, it might have been Theseus. I'm not sure who was. I think Hercules is uh, younger brother. Her- Hercules, I mean, Hercules is associated with the myth of Alcestis, which is another woman who travels to hell and comes back. So I get them, I, I, I get them mixed up, I think. It's understood, all these uh, travelers to hell and back. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you, you think it's supposed to be so hard, but apparently they were doing it uh, f- fairly routinely, at least if you had half God's blood in you. Um, so, all right, so per, the story of Persephone uh, and Demeter we have here, Demeter and Hades working out the seasons, basically. Um, so most people are probably familiar with that story. Um, but I don't know if they're, they're familiar with uh, Tartarus or Tatarus, which is the bad hell, the deep hell that's underneath regular hell in Greek mythology. And that's actually, uh, I know it for, because the that's where the Greek gods, when they defeated their parents, the Titans, that's, that's you know, where... If you know, if they imprison them, even if they chop them up into little pieces, they put them all into Tartarus, where they could never escape. Exactly, and and Tartarus looks a lot more like what we think of as hell now. I mean, that is a place where you are dead ass being punished. <laughs> it's not a good place to be. Even if you're, <laughs> even if you are a titan, that there's there's no hope for you. Mm-hmm. So the, the whatever's down there is worse than the Titans. Yes, and there were a, it, it was this very um, poetic justice kind of punishment scheme. So if you um, if you did something on Earth, the the punishment that would be fashioned for you in Tartarus would somehow reflect what it is that you did on Earth. So. Um, Tantalus, I think it is, who um, gave rise to a family in Greek mythology who had all sorts of terrible things happen to them, um, included among them Agamemnon. You remember him from um, the Trojan War and his daughter Iphigenia and his, um, his son Orestes and Electra. Um, they... Well, we'll talk about them in a few minutes, but they became part of a cycle of mythology that is sort of very important and eventually gives rise to Greek ideas of justice. Um, But Tantalus was a grandfather of this family, and he got himself in trouble by chopping up children and putting them into a pie and serving them to people at dinner. That'll do it. Um, Very very Game of Thronesy. Yeah, yeah. What was it, Walder Frey? Yeah, yeah. Um, and his punishment in hell involved being, and you know, the word tantalus is your first clue because it becomes our word tantalize. Um, but it involves him being in, I think, a pool of water, kind of up to his neck, and there's honey that's dripping, but he can never quite reach it. There's this sweetness that would slake his thirst, but it's always right out of reach, and that's how he's going to spend the rest of his life. So we actually found somebody who Winnie the Pooh was more successful than. 
Exactly. All right, poor Tantalus. He wasn't even a, a bear, was he? He was not. All right. So this this sounds very um, like Job like like in in uh, in suffering. Um. Yes and no. I guess. Um. I mean, the, the Job the, the Job story is a little bit different because Job isn't being punished for anything, as best as we can tell. Um. At least in in the biblical story, Job is a righteous man. He is being and tested. He's being tested. Over yeah. and over and over in very yeah. cruel and horrible ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really troubling biblical story for me and I think for a lot of people because you wonder why this is happening to this, to this person. Um, and the way that the story is written really feels like God is kind of playing games with this man's life. And what do you do with that? Yeah, I don't know, but I know what I'm going to do with. I'm going to segue back into into Greek mythology uh, <laughs> before I get myself into more trouble. I mean, we did enough last week with censoring God with with Reverend Jim Wells. Great show, check it out. Um, but yeah, so the Titans were the parents of the Greek gods. They were actually parents of the Titans before that, which I'm not that that familiar with what they're called and what happened here. But uh, a, a lot of the gods seem to be thrown up by Kronos, who was, I guess, the king of the Titans, not the king of the gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a lot of people seem to be born out of people's heads. Uh, Greek mythology is horrible. The, the, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the char- some serious body horror, or body horror in, in Greek mythology, yeah. Yes, and, and Zeus is a horrible guy. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it's like, I mean, no wonder the Greeks wrote all tragedies. I mean, if, if the mythology is where it started, I mean, the whole thing was about tragedy. It was very, very Buddhist in the life is suffering with, without the uh, way how to, ways how to resolve that through meditation and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Zeus, Zeus was a, like a serial rapist. And I don't know what they were trying to tell you about women who were seduced by goats and swans. Because, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, listen, I'm not a single man, but I had enough trouble as a human. Uh, I imagine I'd have more trouble as a goat or a swan, but, you know, I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't understand. Uh, or a bull. A bull, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, that, 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 that's bullshit. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, so Cronus uh, regurgitated uh, his uh, three top gods, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, and... Hades got the underworld, which I guess seemed like a fair deal at the time, but he, he never seems to be quite happy with it. He's lonely. I mean, you would be lonely down there all of the time, I would think. it's. I don't know. I mean, you seem to, I mean, it's the only place that's guaranteed to grow forever in population. There's always new people coming down there. It seems like, you know, I mean, you'd be... Like a multi-level marketing scheme. But it's not a scheme. I mean, it's based on the one certainty. I mean, uh, multi-level marketing is is, is based on a lot of faith. I mean, death is the one certainty. I mean, we've added a couple more since then, but, you know, death really is, you know, comes before taxes. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Yeah, and and where Hades really, where he gets his gears ground is when um, someone that he feels he's entitled to gets to cheat him and gets to stay out of the underworld. So that's when Hades, um, that's when he reacts with anger. Right. And he's a little bit like Loki, but not exactly. Or maybe Loki's a little bit like him, but not exactly. And you noted Elysium, which seems like more like a a semi 
heaven place. Like if you're like a really good mm -hmm. mortal, you'd uh, you, you, maybe you get like uh, halfway up Mount Olympus, but not all the way up Mount Olympus. Right. And originally, you know, initially Elysium, um, well, Elysium is something like Valhalla. If you're familiar with the, the kind of the Nordic mythologies, a lot of these mythologies, um, really center um, warriors, heroes, men who go out and fight on behalf of their cultures. Um, but Elysium was reserved initially for um, mortals who had a divine connection. So maybe um, Zeus fathered them. They had a mortal mother, but they had Zeus as a father. So maybe they were a half god. Um, or they might be someone who a god favored for whatever reason. And the gods would have favorites. They would have someone who they would kind of come down to earth and be pulling strings on their behalf, trying to get them, um, you know, advantages in fights or in politics or something. And the, the favorites of the gods would be permitted to go to Elysium. And that was like a big feast hall. It was a big party. You would sit around and you would eat and you would drink and it was a good time. And then eventually that, that, um, evolved into something more like what we would think of as being heaven, which was where people would go if they led a good life. As you're talking about this, I think about Valhalla, and I know we'll get to Norse later on, and they have the, the Valkyries, or like the, the warrior women who are the guides of the fallen men. And in Greece, you have the warrior women in the Amazon. So it's interesting they each have one mm -hmm. sort of form of warrior women who are, you know, uh, per se righteous. I, I was also thinking about, and this is not exactly on topic, but it doesn't matter that, that, you know, I was thinking, you know, Zeus has all the kids who are demigods and like, you know, I know Poseidon, he was the father of the, the Cyclops or the Cyclopes and they were sort of tragic figures, but definitely not really demigodish. They were sort of like more like monsters. Um, and I'm trying to, and like, I know that there were like Gorgons who I think were the kids of the Titans also, not the gods. I'm not exactly sure about that, but I don't, I don't remember like, Apollo having children or even Ares. I mean, I know in Wonder Woman, Ares was uh, Wonder Woman's father or maybe Zeus was her father. Yeah, Zeus, I think Zeus was her father again, not even Ares. Um, so like, did like Hades and Ares and like the other male gods have kids? I mean, I forget. I know the women didn't. Um, I lost part of your question there over the connection. Um, but if I, I, hopefully I heard enough to answer it. Um, they would have children. And sometimes those children would ascend to become gods effectively themselves. One of those was Dionysus, um, who became uh, the, the god of, I mean, wine and partying and debauchery and orgy, orgies and, you know, just all of this great Greek stuff. Um, and then sometimes they wouldn't. I mean, sometimes you'd have children who were fathered and they, it seems like they led like relatively average lives. Where the Gorgons come from? Oh my gosh. Uh, where did the Gorgons come from? I think they were fathered. Who they were fathered by? Um, I can't remember. I thought they were from the Titans. I think they were. They were sort of an ancient. I, I want to say they were. They were like an ancient little triplet. But yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll move off of the Gorgons for the moment. Yeah. That, that can be another show for another day at some point. I will I'm gonna do a show on Greek mythology one day. I'm I'm building up my my team. I have someone on comparative mythology, I have someone on Norse, I have someone on Egyptian, uh I'm and I'm working out a few odds. I figured Greek would be the easiest one to find because 
like you said, it's the one that most people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, oh, you wanted to get into the family of Tantalus. Um, and included here, you have Sisyphus, you have Atreus, Agamemnon, uh, Epigenia, Orestes, Electra. Um, who, Electra, wasn't, wasn't she uh, Oedipus's mom and girlfriend? Uh, no, that was Jocasta. Oh, God, um, I'm so bad at this. Yeah, yeah. Um, different, uh, different, oh, um, Orestes is Electra's brother. Mm. Um, but this, the, the, the family of Tantalus is, um, the family that I mentioned a few minutes ago sort of winds up developing or representing the development of, of this movement towards a justice system in Greece. Um, Agamemnon, you remember from um, the Trojan Wars, his wife, um, his wife is um, Claytemnestra, and his brother's wife is Helen. Right. And so Helen gets um, gets abducted and taken over to Troy. This war is fought in order to bring her back, um, but in order to um, to to ask the gods for good sailing weather, basically, um, Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter Iphigenia, uh, and this angers his wife, who, who seethes about it for the entire time that Agamemnon is away at war. Can't imagine and when why. Agamemnon returns, um, his wife and her lover kill him. Ah. And Agamemnon's daughter, Electra, is um, is furious about this and um, and wants to, for her brother, Orestes, to avenge her father's death, which he does. Um, and then the Furies are unleashed on this situation. Um, the Furies were these figures who would be responsible for justice. If you did something to harm another person, then they were responsible for ensuring that you faced a similar harm, something that that um, was kind of merited by whatever it was that you did. And by the end of this cycle of plays um, by Aeschylus, the Greek playwright, um, you had an Orestes who um, regretted what he did in killing his mother and her lover, um, and who, instead of being punished, um, would go on trial. And he was tried, um, and the 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 punishment for his crime was something that was more like what we would think of as punishment in our criminal justice system today. So imprisonment, or paying a fine, or um, probation, or whatever the case may be, instead of being killed. It was it was a movement away from eye for an eye, basically. Okay, born out of patricide and fratricide and infanticide and a lot of a lot of siding in the family. Um, it's, yeah, yeah. From, well, it's a violent family. It's not a family I wanted like spend Thanksgiving with. Right. Well, well, from the Titans <laughs> to the gods to, to their kids, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure uh, that uh, Agamemnon's wife wasn't too happy about the fact that. Listen, let, let's face facts. Hel- Helen was not kidnapped. She left eagerly. Um, you know, she, she voluntarily left. Uh, the, the Trojans were definitely the good guys in, in uh, that story. The Greeks were totally the bad guys. And 
for those who don't remember, Agamemnon called all the Greek kings together, basically on a blood oath, that we all swore an alliance to each other. It was sort of like NATO, but they meant it. And like, so if, if one of our kings is insulted and, and goes to war, we all have to go to war. And none of them wanted to because they didn't really like his brother. I forgot his name. It, it, it was like, it wasn't Leonidas, but it was something with an L, like Laodice or something like that. Anyway, Agamemnon shamed them all, and they all said, okay, we're, we'll go. And then they ended up going for 10 years of, you know, badness. All right, so back to hell. So, so we well, we moved on to a better system of justice through uh, Greek retribution. Um, and then we have uh, talking about souls with the chance of purification and to move on. But for others, we have eternal punishment. So that's sort of our Elysium and our Hades, or well, not Hades, Elysium and Tartarus, or Tartarus. How is it pronounced? Is it Tartarus or Tartarus? I'd say Tartarus. Okay. That may be wrong. Well, there's an R there, so I'm with you on the Tartarus. But I hear a lot of people say Tartarus, and there's no, but there's no. R. I mean, I've never heard of a silent R before. I can't think of one anyway. Um, all right. So then, I think that the next. I don't know if you want to go to Norse or if you want to go to sort of the Rome uh, legend of the Aeneid, Aeneid and, our, and our guide who, you know, you're taking his place today, Virgil. Well, let's go to Aeneid and Virgil and Dante because that's sort of a natural progression since you were talking about the Trojan War, I think. Sounds good. All right. Lead on, lead on, guide. Should we say traveler beware, here there be monsters? Well, and, and abandon all hope ye who enter here. Yes. Um, so Aeneas is well, Aeneas is one of the heroes of the Trojan War, and he, after the war is over, uh, ends up kind of wandering around a little bit like uh, Odysseus does, um, and he ends up founding Rome. Right, but know, Aeneas was Trojan, so we have to, we should be clear he's one of the heroes on the Trojan side. Yes, yes, um, and he ends up founding Rome, um, at least mythologically speaking, and and the. The Aeneid, the poem by Virgil, um, is kind of generally understood as being um, the story by the story intended to give uh, the Roman people its its identity, its its epic history, in the same way that Homer provides an epic history for the Greeks, um, or Tolkien provides an epic history, you know, arguably for England. So um, that's that's kind of where that that poem is coming from. But there is a passage in the poem in the Aeneid, where um, Aeneas winds up traveling into hell, um, and he gets, I think, the, the ultimate um, um, bad man experience in which he runs into the shade or the ghost or the soul of a woman who has committed suicide for love of him um, while he's in hell, and she refuses to speak to him. She's still pissed off at him. So, um he has kind of a, a Twitter or a, um, a, uh, a a social media experience, I think, running into someone that he has ghosted in hell. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, the other ghosts were uh, were ganging up on him also? Yeah, yeah. Um, he gets he to return. But, uh, I mean, I think kind of what you're seeing in the Aeneid is the beginning of the idea that people retain their their personalities their essential identities their memories they're still the people that they were on earth even while they're in the underworld 
So Dido remembers Aeneas and she has not forgiven him. Okay, and hell in in that, was it a place of suffering or, or was it still a neutral territory? I think there it's it's still like a relatively neutral territory. Um, I mean, a lot of, of Roman mythology retains the aspects of Greek mythology. Rome was in some ways um, trying to class itself up by associating itself with the Greeks, their democracy and their mythology, and the Indian is no different. Did they call it Hades as well? Uh, they I mean, the, their gods have Latinized names. So, for example, Hades in Greek mythology is Hades in Roman mythology. It's Pluto. Um, so the names are different, but the characters are effectively the same. Okay. So, they, but they don't call the land Plutonium. Guess that would be awesome. No, I don't think so. All right. So we'll move along then from Rome to uh, Dante, as, as you said. Because, I mean, the Aeneas, the Inferno, and, and Paradise Lost are probably the, the three best-known poems, I suppose, uh, on the topic. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even really sure if Paradise Lost is about hell. I, I'm not sure. So, again, that's why that's why you're here. Uh, <laughs> well, it's about the devil. Yeah. You know, of hell now it's it's hard to separate hell from the idea of the devil i think yeah thanks for that out that was a lifeline right there <laughs> all right well we'll stick to your order let's let's go with dante and the inferno which by the way i i re-listened to again in uh preparation for the show and listening to it doesn't help um it has to be read, and I, I didn't take the time to read it. I, I've read it three times, just the last time was probably 10 years ago, and I just couldn't do it again. So luckily enough, I don't need to because, you know, you, you know it by heart. I do not know it by heart. But, um, I mean, I, I, people who struggle with Dante, I recommend if you can find a simple prose translation, reading the prose translation, because... Um, you know, the story itself is fascinating and worth reading. Um, the form of the poem, Terzarima, um, can be a challenge, um, and particularly because there are all kinds of um, qualities of Italian. And this was a poem that was written in Italian, which was you know re fairly revolutionary for the time because... Up till Dante, people were primarily writing in Latin, and to write in Italian, the language of the people, um, was making a big political statement at the time. But there are qualities of Italian that lend themselves to rhyme and certain rhyming structures that do not lend themselves well to English. Um, and so there have been um, some very good English translations of Dante, definitely, but we are, in all of these translations, we're always losing something from the original Italian. Right. Um, so if you want to just read the story, I would look for a simple prose translation of the story, because that's worthwhile. Right, and don't listen to the free version. It, uh, I mean, when they have the, the guide's voice in he talks like this, it's very distracting. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Dante's Inferno was very much a... a it was like a, almost like a protest poem, and it seemed to be a protest poem against the abuses of power, uh, maybe most notably in the Catholic Church. Um, I'm not even sure if there were other churches at the time. Um, but yeah, that, 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 that's what I remember from it, and I remember that the, there were the levels of hell, and it was 
mm-hmm. sort of strange as to who was in what levels and what sins that they were associated with. Mm-hmm. Well, lots is going on um, during this time in history, um, both politically and religiously. And what's part of what's going on in Dante's Italy is that you have very early beginnings of separation of church and state. I mean, it's very early. We're we're nowhere near, you know, Henry VIII creating his own church and yanking himself away from the Roman Catholic Church. But we are beginning to see, partly because of of where, um, uh, the, partly because of the role that that Italy was playing in. Um, the global economy at this point, which was that it was a center of commerce, uh, it was a center of banking. We're developing all of these kind of private businesses, corporate forms, credit, uh, commercial paper, that were allowing power to private actors, whether those were noble families or collections of merchants. Um, And that power was beginning to threaten the power that the church had always held. And um, some of the the popes, if you know some of your Roman Catholic history, um, you know, not all of the popes were like warm and fuzzy, friendly people. Right. And um, they would sometimes either through themselves or through their families, because, uh, you know, the popes oftentimes came from um, wealthy, powerful families, would do political things that we would consider pretty awful today. Um, and you were starting to see some pushback against that from private actors, from other families, from companies. And Dante was kind of at the center of that in a lot of ways. He held um, a, a relatively powerful position with his city-state. There were conflicts going on between these groups that favored certain factions that were either um Uh, aligned with the Pope or not aligned with the Pope. And the dangerous thing was that you would align yourself with one group and then that group would fall out of favor somehow and then you would fall out of favor. And so around this time you see, and it's not just Dante, I mean, going back even to Roman times, you see this problem of of, uh, political alliances that very quickly become political exiles. Dante's one of Dante's friends is exiled because he winds up on the wrong side of a political intrigue and then not that long after that the same thing happens to Dante so he um he begins his poem famously with uh saying that in the middle of his life he found himself lost in this dark wood and um I mean I think anyone who is entered into midlife has has felt a little bit like that without necessarily being exiled from our home country. But, um, and that's where, that's where Dante begins his poem. This, this kind of lost, um, confused, scared place. And you indicated that this is where we get the concept of punishment being final finality. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were, there were always stories of certain heroes or certain people who might wind up going to the underworld and maybe they would be able to pass from one level to another. They would earn someone's favor or a hero might come down and rescue them like with Persephone um, or with Alcestis. Um, But with Dante's hell, which is 
the Christian, the Roman Catholic idea of hell um, kind of becomes fused with Dante's idea of hell in this poem. Um, in, in Dante's hell, once you're there, you're there. I you're know not coming going, out. I know this is taking a step backwards, but who was Orpheus? Do you, do you remember offhand? Orpheus um, was a poet. I mean, I, every poet sort of owes some debt of, of gratitude and honor to Orpheus. Um, Orpheus was considered the greatest living poet. Um, and, you know, when you think of Orpheus, you think of him and his lyre because poets would often sing or recite their poetry to music. That was partly how they would remember these very long epic poems that they would recite for people. Um, but he would make this, this extraordinary, beautiful music and recite this extraordinary, beautiful poetry. Uh, and people loved him for that. Um, and unfortunately, Orpheus uh, loved a woman, Eurydice. And Eurydice died and went to the underworld. And the story of Orpheus and Eurydice is that um, Orpheus traveled into the underworld to try and bring her back. And he was allowed to bring her back, um, but was told that for the trip back up to the surface of the earth, and you, you know, you're picturing them sort of walking up this long incline of a cave or something or some kind. But for the entirety of this trip back up to the surface, he was not to look back. He should not look at Eurydice. Um, and they made almost the entire trip and he managed to not look. And then his curiosity got the better of him. You have to, you have to feel for him. You have to wonder, you know, is he bringing up Eurydice or is he bringing up some demonic, you know, zombie version of Eurydice? And he wants to know. Mm -hmm. So he looks and she disappears. She's uh, gone, never to be recovered again. Like Gilgamesh. He almost got there. Exactly. Uh, that is hell. Um, all right. Well, back to, uh, I had forgotten who Orpheus was. And of course, now with the Matrix coming out with their newest movie and Orpheus being a character, I couldn't talk about hell and poetry and not, and have a poet here and not ask about Orpheus. <laughs> so, okay. So with Dante, we've got our famous circles of hell. Um, and, but there was a, a level before hell. Is that right? Or, or two yes. even. So there well, was a some of this is, some of this is Roman Catholic doctrine. Okay. Um, there is this, so there's a vestibule in hell, in Dante's hell, um, which is which contains the sort of people that you would think you would find like in a waiting area, a waiting room. Um, sure. People who refuse to take a side, you know, very Neil Peart-like. If you refuse to 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 take a side, you still have made a choice. And um, and like and Dante, you know, was very much a political actor or a product of his time. So some of the people that he included as being in Hell's Vestibule were people who he felt um, were just sort of opportunists who refused to take a side. Um, and then, and so that's the vestibule. Those are people who are just going to apparently spend all of eternity waiting. Right, the wishy washy um, which I think people. Is very Beetlejuice like. Yes, very waiting for Godot. Mm -hmm. And then there's limbo. Um, which people who have been raised Catholic know that limbo is where you go if you're basically a, a good person, but um, you haven't been, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Uh, you haven't been saved by Jesus. So limbo would be babies who died before they could be baptized. 
Um, they were people who lived a righteous life before Jesus came and was and and, um, and saved humanity. Um, and actually, there is in I think in, in the Inferno, um, and if not, then just in sort of Catholic stories, um, the idea that when Jesus was crucified and spent three days in hell, that one of the things that he did while he was in hell was to get some of the people who were in limbo because they were born and died before Jesus um, and take them up to heaven. So people like Adam, Abel from the story of Cain and Abel, Noah, Moses, King David. Oh, um, Just nobodies. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so they're in limbo, which is, is limbo different than purgatory? Um, yes. Okay. Purgatory is, and remember, there's a, there's a whole other Dante book poem called the Purgatorio. Um, but purgatory would be where you would go if you were a good person, um, you were a Christian, but you died in a state of sin, and you would go there to be cleansed of your sin before you could go to heaven. Okay, so purgatory was a waiting area, but a waiting area with an end. Uh, limbo yes. was uh, you were good, but you you did you weren't saved. So you were good yes. enough, so but uh, you were you were stuck there. Um, but it was better than the vestibule where you were just sort of waiting forever. So you were in the the doctor's waiting room, and nobody would help you. There was no customer service forever. Yes. All right, and then we have it. The order of the other levels is really interesting. Um, so we have lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, and treachery. So Dante was really about loyalty, wasn't he? He really was. You know, I mean, politics was very important. He's a fickle, and, fickle, mm -hmm. maybe like a petty guy. Not a lot of forgiveness with this Allegari fella. To betray or cheat your friends was a much worse sin in his eyes than to, you know, sleep with someone you weren't married to. I think that kind of flipped. I mean, <laughs> religious doctrine in later historical times seems like it kind of flipped on that. But Well, well yeah, the, the whole um, gospel of prosperity, I mean, it's basically mm -hmm. made fraud and treachery okay as long as you get to succeed. But, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know. I the part of it. <laughs> yeah. Lust and gluttony. I mean, sheesh. Uh, gluttony. I mean, that's that. That one's definitely going to get me. That's for sure. Um, as I eat leftover Mexican food for breakfast. So, <laughs> should we talk a little bit more about these levels, or is just naming them, you know, sort of enough? I think naming them is enough. I mean, this was another. This was another treatment of hell in which your punishment was very um, po poetic justicey. So. Um, the people who, for example, um, fortune tellers, who were frauds, basically, um, they were doomed in hell to walk around forever with their heads on backwards, meaning they could never see forwards. You don't get to see what's coming anymore. You try so hard in life to see what's coming now, all you will ever do is, is look backwards. But the interesting thing about this and about, I mean, you know, Catholic, religious, Judeo, well, Christian doctrine was developing at this time very much in line with ethical considerations that Aristotle had laid out in Greece. Where was the Pope? Which which level was he stuck in? Well, it depends on which Pope you're asking about, because um, there's an anti-Pope, I think, in the, the ninth circle of hell with Lucifer. 
Um, and then there were some, there was a, at least one Pope, Celestine V, who um, is a Pope that's just kind of doomed to mediocrity, I think, really. No Pope ever since, since him has ever taken his name. Um, and he's, he's a, just a, he was just sort of a nothing guy who didn't do much on behalf of the church. And so he's, he's spending eternity in the vestibule. Hmm. Well, that makes sense, I suppose. Now, Lucifer was stuck in ice. And is Lucifer synonymous with Satan and the devil, or is Lucifer just uh, sort of like a fallen angel in Dante's world? In Dante's poem, Lucifer is Satan. Okay. Um, yeah, Lucifer is the, the angel who leads a rebellion against God in heaven and is therefore cast down into hell where he will remain. Okay. Now, he is he the ruler of hell in this case? Because it certainly doesn't seem like a ruler um, is frozen in time. Well, it's, it's sort of interesting because we we think now of Satan as being um, this like a an actor, a mover and shaker. He's up on earth leading us into evil, tempting us into doing bad things, torturing us, possessing us, depending on which um, exorcism movie you're looking at. But um, in Dante's poem, Lucifer is trapped, I think, up to his waist in ice. He's never going anywhere. Uh, he's got, I think, six wings, um, which would have, if he had remained an angel, designated him as being an archangel. And his, his great wings do nothing for him in hell other than to freeze the ice harder and, and trap people with him. And he's, st he's stuck there with two of the assassins of Julius Caesar and Judas Iscariot, or Escarot, which is the Judas. Uh, so, yes. uh, so obviously, uh, uh, you know, up, up there with, I guess he was very in favor of the uh, Roman Empire kind of ideal. But yeah, so there are some pretty big traitors there. Someone who uh, was treacherous to Jesus, someone who was treacherous to God, who, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to get too religious here, even though we're talking about hell, but... God and Jesus was, you know, I guess sort of one and the same in the in that Trinity sort of way. Um, and, of course, we have Caesar, which I guess at this point in time, or at least in Dante's mind, you know, Caesar was heroic. And I, I, I know that there's different thoughts on that, but that doesn't matter. For this purpose, all we need to worry about is that, or concern ourselves with, is, is that Dante obviously hold that, uh, held that as uh, up there as one of the top three betrayals ever. <laughs> So, all right, so now we're going to the Nordic Hell, which is H-E-L, uh, probably, you know, made most famous to most people in Thor Ragnarok, where we met Thor's mm -hmm. sister that he didn't know he had, who was named Hell, H-E-L. Is there any coincidence, or is there any, is it more than coincidence that she is H-E-L, and we have Hell, H-E-L-L? -L? And which came first, or do we have any idea? Uh, well, I think the Nordic Hell came first, but I think our hell is, is probably named for the, the Nordic goddess. It's interesting because in the Norse mythology, the first two humans that Odin and his two brothers made had the, the first name, the male was with an A and the female's name was with an E. I, I forget their names. And they were sort of made of like driftwood and sand, sort of like Adam was made of Sand and golems were made of clay and all sorts. All a lot, a lot of a lot of parallels there. Someone borrowing from someone. I'm not sure who. I guess it depends on how long you believe that the oral tradition of the Norse uh, dates back, because the Edda wasn't written until what I think was the sixth century, and it was written in Iceland. Something like that. Mm -hmm. 
And obviously yeah. Iceland was, you know, colonized by, uh, or I don't, I don't know if there was any indigenous there, but anyway, it was the, 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 the Vikings from their various countries uh, moved on to Iceland from other places. And, you know, they were obviously in other places before that as well. So anyway, that's, that's my very uh, primitive uh, uh, historic background of the poetic Edda, but uh, and by the way, I did listen to this also on on Audible. This was better. This this one worked much better than than Dante's Divine Comedy did. The the the, the poetic Edda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As yeah a, well, there's 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 a lot of action in the Edda. Yeah, as a listening vehicle, this was actually pretty good. Um, so yeah, so. Um, However, it looks like in the Edda that, uh, unlike the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Hel was not the daughter of Odin and, and not really Thor's um, sister. It would be Thor's, uh, I guess, sort of niece, because it was the daughter of Loki, who was his sort of brother, but not exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Loki is this um, is a fascinating character in Nordic mythology, and... You have to kind of separate him from the Tom Hiddleston version of Loki, which is very charming and um, and mischievous. But Loki could do like pretty awful things left to his own devices, um, not least of which, you know, killing kind of the most beloved of the gods, basically. But um, and, uh, yeah, in the Edda, um, Hell is Loki's daughter. So you know, the the child of of mischief and of things going wrong is hell yeah loki had some pretty powerful children i, I would say his children exceeded him which i guess is every parent's dream mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean that giant wolf what fenmir or fenweir uh, yeah. didn't he have like a giant serpent child also the serpent the midgard serpent i think yeah right who circled the earth i mean look loki mm -hmm. was having some serious who, who were the moms the moms of the children? Sure. I think monsters, I think. I think um, Loki was sort of sleeping with monsters. Isn't there a, a heavy metal uh, album called Lay Down with Monsters? Um, there might be. It would help me if you would tell me who you think recorded it. Yeah, I'm way too old to remember that. Let's just say that there is a movie. <laughs> Maybe it's Halloween. The, 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 it's going to be the namesake of this show, I think, so... Uh, it's probably not. It you know. It's it, probably Iron Maiden. Who who else was that good? Not Iron Maiden. Black yeah, Sabbath. Iron Maiden. I know. Okay. I know you were the one. Oh, what was that word that you taught me with the what what what's the word they use in poetry and they use in the guitar riffs? Uh, arpeggios. Arpeggios, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, that was. Oh. Yes, Iron Maiden guitar work is very laden with arpeggios. Yes, I I, I should never forget that word. That that's up there with paradoila as as like things I should never forget. Sorry, I'm going to let you do the poetic Edda and their version of Hell. Um, there, the version of Hell for Nordic mythology is a lot more like Elysium. Um, it's a place where heroes would go. There'd be mead halls. If you if you died honorably in battle, you could expect to go to. Um, something like what we would call Valhalla now and just spend your life celebrating. And then otherwise there was an underworld where you might spend the rest of your life just sort of hanging out. Um, but a, a lot of Nordic mythology is mostly concerned 
it, it is concerned less with what happens to you after you die and is concerned more with when the world itself is going to end. Um, there's this very kind of apocalyptic Ragnarok um, focus in Nordic mythology that's, that's um, focused on what happens now to the people who are alive and less so on what happens to the people who are dead. Yeah, very Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. Or uh, Revelations, but uh, yeah, Ragnar. Yeah, so the people most. If you didn't go to Valhalla, and that was basically on how you lived and if you died honorably. If you didn't go to Valhalla, um, you basically went to. I guess you would call it the sort of that vestibule or, or limbo. Mm-hmm. Well, more the vestibule. You sort of went to Nowheresville. I guess it was sort of like Hades. You just sort of went someplace neutral. Um, Valhalla. Doesn't seem to have any women there besides the Valkyries, who are sort of like mm-hmm. the angels that shepherd you back and forth. Um, so a bunch of dudes drinking and fighting and rinse repeat. Yeah, there's this. I mean, there's a um, there's a, a focus or an encouragement on being extraordinary. That in life you should distinguish yourself in some way, and um, for a warrior people the way to distinguish yourself was either to be a great king or a great fighter. And those were the people who went to celebrate in the afterworld. And women were, were kind of an afterthought. Um, women were the people who cooked and fed and clothed the great warriors. Um, but the life, whatever afterlife remained for them was not going to be the glorious one. It was going to be something more like the same. So take the show Vikings, take out some of the hyperbole, uh, take out 90% of the shield maidens, and it's not too far off that seeking fame was what they were all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vi- Vikings were... Which I don't know is, is all that different from what we're all about now. You know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not necessarily running each other through. We're on Twitter. But um, there is this impulse towards leaving a mark because we are very hyper aware of the fact that at some point in the future, we're not going to be here. As you talk to someone who has podcasts, I guess in my little pathetics uh, journey towards uh, immortality, but then again, I'm talking to a poet who's also creating a way to be immortal. Uh, But at least you have awards behind yours. I I don't have any awards. Um, Maybe I should make up one. Um, all right, well, let's move to some things that are maybe a little bit less familiar to people, even if the, even if the Norse one has probably been a little obscured by the MCU. Um, Chinese, one of the oldest civilizations on Earth and probably something that most people don't know anything about. So what is hell to the Chinese, or at least the ancient Chinese, um, or before, you know, uh, you know, Christianity and Buddhism and Taoism and uh, Shinzoism or whatever, you know, whatever else is sort of uh, taken over there. Right. And, and, and I want to avoid the idea that, you know, Chinese culture beliefs is sort of a monolith, that there is some single Chinese culture belief. There are actually many, many cultures and many, many beliefs, many, many religions. But one of the, the um, ideas of hell in Chinese culture is that there are really like 12,000 hells underneath the earth. There are all of these little chambers, um, something like Dante, maybe, 
um, but just many, many more of these circles under the earth. And that was where you would go. Their hell was something more like what we would think of as purgatory. So you would go to hell in order to be purified of the sinful things that you had done. Um, and then potentially to return, to be reincarnated into another being on earth. Well, that sounds nice, the reincarnation. And um, I guess uh, India, is that similar as well? Yes. I mean, there are, there are ideas of reincarnation in Hinduism. Um, in some forms of Buddhism, there are ideas of reincarnation. Um, with many of the, the thinking in these, um, in these beliefs being that life is a process of getting better, of improving, of learning to deal with um, your challenges in um, more spiritually healthy ways that hopefully each time you go around, you're learning a little bit more and that maybe eventually you'll be released into something called nirvana, um, some sort of communion with a great spiritual force, whatever that might be. Indeed. Okay, and that'll take us to Milton, Paradise Lost, where we have, uh, where we meet now Satan, uh, not Lucifer, as the devil. Um, and, well, and we have Tartarus again, uh, reemerging as Hell Hell, um, and some other stuff as well. The, 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 well, the, basically the Dead Sea Scrolls story. I mean, Milton is, as, as, you know, when people talk about poets, I mean, what do you think of when you think of a poet? You, you think of somebody maybe in a black turtleneck and a beret or, um, somebody who's very emotional, someone who's very traumatic, maybe. And Milton is kind of the opposite of all those things. Milton is associated with a very rational, highly engineered kind of poetry. Um, verse is kind of um, forcing a structure on things that might not otherwise wish to be structured. And that was, he, in writing Paradise Lost, Milton is a great explainer. He's a great mansplainer. <laughs> um, and and he's, he's taking all of these ideas, um, that he, at least in Milton's mind, maybe the, the peasantry um, are too stupid or, or uh, incapable of understanding, and he's giving them something that they can understand and giving them uh, a way to understand why the world works the way that it does and how it is that they can hope to be saved. Okay, well, human explain it to me and tell me what what does Milton teach us about hell and 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 you know, he picked Virgil as his guide, right? You know, Virgil from the Aeneid. Mm -hmm. A sort of a, I guess a homage or was it irony or tell me Oh, about it's that. very much an homage to Dante. Um, and it's it's Dante in English. I mean, Milton is writing in English. He's writing in um, iambic pentameter, which is the great, um, iambic pentameter is the rhythm of conversation, of rhetoric. And he is, he, he's writing an English inferno in a lot of different ways, but he's writing the story of how Lucifer came to be Lucifer. Um, of, so it's the fall both of this angel who rebelled against man and how it was that he came to be um, set up in hell, but it's also the story of the fall of man. So Adam and Eve and how they were tempted by the serpent in the garden. Um, he has, Satan is this Greek 
tragic hero in in Milton. Satan was, I mean, Lucifer means light bringer. Um, and Lucifer was one of the most beautiful angels in heaven, but he had this fatal flaw. He was arrogant. He, he, um, he didn't take direction well. And so he, in his rebellion, was relegated to hell. Man, the situation is comparable because um, Milton, who was no great lover of women, um, sets up Eve as being the cause of the fall of man. She was weak. She was prone to temptation. She gave in. She took a bite of the apple. And then even worse, she took the apple and convinced Eve, and, and convinced Adam, who is otherwise a, a good man, but, you know, he wants to keep his wife happy. And Milton might have felt like that was a, a potential cause for, for men to lose their way. It was to, to keep the female of the species happy. Um, and Adam joins her in taking a bite of the apple. Yeah, he clearly ignores it that Adam rejected his first wife because she wasn't submissive enough. But okay. <laughs> well, Lilith is, I mean, we could do an entire show on Lilith. It, it, you know if you volunteer for it, it's going to happen. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, check and check. We will do an entire show on Lilith because I, I am fascinated with Lilith. I... I, I think of her as the the one of the first vampires. Yeah, possibly, or you know, one of the first feminists. You could go either way. Ooh, I like that. Well, we can go mm -hmm. both ways. This is this is uh, like I said, the Garden of Doom. We meander. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Di digressions are my specialty. Uh, it, it's finding my way back to the path, which is my weakness, <laughs> at, at least with regards like to. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. I often think of myself as Dante. Um, Never, never once. This is the first time ever. Um, all right, so we have Satan as the tragic hero. Did we did we finish our Milton verse or or and that? And we're going to move on to modernism. Or did I interrupt you at a crucial moment? Uh, no, I, I think we're we're finished with Milton. I'm more than happy to put Milton away. He's not one of my favorites. I will say, you know, I mean, Alcestis is one of my favorites, and my my first manuscript is a treatment of the story of Alcestis. I mean, who? And Milton wrote a poem about Alcestis. Who's Alcestis? Um, Alcestis is a figure from Greek mythology, and she was the wife of a man who learned that he was going to die. Um, and her husband um, was a good husband, um, and he, I, I don't remember what he did, he irritated, I think he irritated um, Artemis, who was the huntress goddess, Diana was her Roman counterpart. He irritated her by, I think, failing to show her enough respect on the day of his marriage to Alcestis. And as a result, she decreed that the husband had to die. However, um, Apollo was a great fan of the husband. And he, he couldn't save the husband from dying per se, but he did get him a deal where if he could find somebody else who'd be willing to die for him, that he could stay alive. And um, the husband went around and he asked his friends and his relations. There's a very famous scene in the, the play by Euripides in which he goes to his father, who's by now an elderly man, and says, will you die for me? And the father's like, hell no, I'm not going to die for you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to live, the, you know, whatever five years I have left. And there's this great scene between the, the husband and the father where the father, the husband is saying, you know, you're old. Why can't you die now? I mean, what difference is another couple of years going to make for you? 
Um, but anyway, well, this is ancient Greece, this. so his father was probably 43 and was like, boy, I can still kick your ass. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Alcestis, though, um, steps forward and says, you know, I don't want my husband to die. It would be terrible for our family. And, it, you know, I mean, to be a woman in Greek society was not necessarily a great thing, but to be a widow in Greek society was um, could be really bad because... You were really, you weren't expected to, you weren't allowed to work. You weren't really supposed to leave the house. I mean, an honorable Greek wife should be kind of in the house all of the time. They had and to marry the least desirable brother. I'm oh, sorry, speaking of you. Sorry. She, she, she'd have to marry the least desirable brother of, of uh, her husband. Yeah, exactly. Um, so rather than face that fate and subject her children to that fate, Alcestis volunteered to die. And she did. She died. And... It's a very strange play, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so interesting. But in the middle of this, I mean, literally, uh, the house is in mourning. Alcestis has just died. In the middle of this, um, Heracles or Hercules shows up. Um, he's always sort of bumbling into things like that. <laughs> and he comes to the door. I mean, I guess he was he, he heard there was going to be a party or something. He comes to the door. And um, Admetus, who's the husband, says uh, tries to send him away, but he doesn't want to tell Hercules what's happened um, because somehow, you know, the, telling him that a death has just happened in the house would really put, um, you know, I mean, it would just, you know, harsh as buzz. So he he brings Hercules in eventually. They actually throw a party because it's very important to look out for your guests and. Hercules eventually yeah. finds out that this has happened, and he's so upset, he he himself travels to hell, and he finds Alcestis, and is able to bring her back. And there's this, another great scene at the end of this play, where Alcestis is standing there, and she has a hood sort of covering her face, you can't see her face, and Hercules presents her to Admetus and says, here, marry this woman. And Admetus says, I, you know, I'm not really not ready for that kind of thing. You know, my wife just died. Um, and Hercules keeps sort of pressing the woman on Admetus, who eventually relents and puts her hood back, and it's Alcestis, and she's returned from the dead. And because it's a, a Euripides play, there's all sorts of weird black comedy and irony. Um, it's it's really it's a twisted play. It's really really twisted, which is which has meant that historians have had kind of a hard time with it. But anyway, um, Milton takes the story and he turns Alcestis into kind of a paragon of female female virtue, which is what she became. Um, Chaucer talks tells a story about Alcestis. Um, there's a, a Shakespeare play with a character who is kind of a thinly veiled Alcestis, and she comes to stand for uh, what a good woman should be and look like. And in Milton, she looks like the shade of his wife who died in, died in childbirth. Ah, okay. Very nice. Very, very circular. She's the anti-Hester Prynne. Yes. All right. Yes. So, okay, so now we're going to get, uh, we're moving into modernism. That's the next part of your outline anyway. So, what is modernism and hell? So, we're skipping over a lot, a lot, a lot of literature here. Um, you know, but the story of the movement from Milton to somebody like Matthew Arnold, who wrote the, the poem Dover Beach, is the story of society and art 
gradually divorcing itself from religion and from kind of elevating religion. I mean, for a period of time, to be a writer meant to write religious allegorical subjects. Um, And Matthew Arnold in Dover Beach kind of elegizes this moment of society um, being completely divorced from those ideas and facing a time in which you can't really count on there being um, a god, possibly an afterlife. Um, And in the poem, famously, he's standing on the beach looking out the ocean and kind of coming to grips with the idea that there might not be anything else there. There might not be a hell. There might not be a heaven. You might not be able to count that good is going to triumph over evil. And that poem um, is is considered by you know many historians, literary historians, as being one of the early uh, introductions of that theme of modernism. And what time period are we talking about? When was this written? Late. 1800s. Okay, so when we're talking about modernism, we're talking about about a century and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Or yeah. Um, all right. So, who, well, you said we skipped a lot. Where are there any major works that anybody should familiarize themselves without getting too far into them? You mean before Matthew Arnold? Yeah, between Milton and Arnold. Well, I mean, there's tons. Um, I mean, we skipped over Shakespeare. We skipped over um, Edmund Spencer. We skipped over lots and lots. But I mean, I'm just, I'm sorry, in, in terms of thinking of hell, um, we skipped over, I mean, Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. We could talk about the idea of, of reanimating corpses and, and what that might mean for life on earth versus um you know, a hell that you can't really bring people back from. Um, but Ooh. for much of the time, the I, these ideas of hell that we've been talking about are very much Christian ideas of hell and, and of hell being a place where you go if you're a bad person on earth. Mm-hmm. And as we start to approach the beginning of the 20th century, we start to um, pull apart, for, pull away from that idea and start to deal with the possibility that this might be it. There might not be a great beyond, either a good place or a bad place. And what do we make of that? That is a tough one. Um, so you named a couple of places, uh, not places, authors here, uh, Wilfred or Wilfred, Owen, Robert Lowell, Rimbaud or Rimbaud. Rimbaud, uh, yeah. Yeah, I am not familiar with any of those names. So what what do we need to know about these gentlemen? So these are just people that, I, um, that came to my mind as I was thinking about literary treatments of hell, more contemporary literary treatments of hell. Wilfred Owen um, died in World War I, um, but he, he was a poet, and his probably most famous poem is a poem called Strange Meeting, where he talks about... Um, being in the trenches and having an encounter with a a shade like a ghost from hell and it's it's a poem about war it's it's a poem about how war is hell realistically um but it's a poem in which hell is has moved to earth we are beginning to think about hell as being suffering on earth as opposed to this place that you go to when you die gotcha and I saw that you put here in next to Lowell something called, I guess it's a poem called Skunk Hour. And I guess the concept, the, the conclusion was I myself am hell, which is sort of dreary. Mm-hmm. 
Poor Robert Lowell. Um, I mean, and I, I love Robert Lowell. Um, I have, I think, a small crush on Robert Lowell, but um, who is a very handsome um, scion of Boston royalty, um, won the, the Pulitzer Prize twice during his poetic career and has been sort of um, written off or is less loved by contemporary poets. But he very famously struggled with um, bipolar disorder during a time when medications for bipolar disorder were very iffy. And lithium, I think, came on the scene. Uh, he, I think he was middle-aged or possibly in his 60s by the time lithium became available. And he had had a number of very serious breakdowns. He wrote about his breakdowns and his struggles with bipolar disorder and his poetry. And um, the Skunk Hour is just, it's, it's an amazing poem. It's a poem about um, facing uncertainty and not necessarily trusting yourself. Uh, and he, he, he utters that, that, that line, I myself and him, am hell, which is maybe a little existential. Um, but this is a guy who struggles with mental illness. And for him, mental illness is that, um, that inability to, to regulate to, to cope with the world in a rational way sometimes. Sure. Yeah, I mean, well, listen, this is something that's very um, upfront and foremost uh, these days. I mean, it was, it's always existed. It's just, you know, it, it, it's a, I don't know, a, a major story. I don't know how, you know, it's hit mainstream. It's popularized seems like the wrong word, but it's, it's more acceptable uh, to be present and, uh, spoken about and, and dealt with now. I'm sure that it was much har harder a few generations ago and certainly hundreds of years ago. And I know there's lots of speculation that, you know, things like witches and, and you know, demons and all things bad and evil were attributed to, uh, you know, people not knowing how to cope with others with, you know, severe mental illness. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. All right. So that was... So that's Lowell, and now we have Rimbaud, Rimbaud, Season in Hell. Everything is miserable, but poetry makes it easier to endure, which sounds a little bit like, who was, who was the philosopher? I think it was, was a Kant who said, uh, you know, you don't have to believe in God, but uh, maybe you should, because if, if you're wrong, you're going to hell. Um, that's Descartes, that's, but yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Rimbaud is... is um, it is what you think of as being this sort of extreme poetic type, you know, kind of, uh, kind of crazy and psycho and drunk all of the time and out in the streets doing terrible things and, uh, suffering from STDs and just, you know, like every possible thing. <laughs> um, but he, he wrote a, 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 um, a long poem called series in hell, uh, a season in hell, sorry, called season in hell. Um, that is, it stands for basically that, that life is misery, uh, that if you're going to be miserable, write poetry about it. And then I, um, I bring it up because Season in Hell is also the name of the record that is recorded by Eddie in the movie Eddie and the Cruisers, if, you've, if you are familiar with that cult film from the 1980s. Was that, Michael, so, was that the Michael, John Paré or Michael Paré? I believe so, yes. Yeah, the song On the yeah. Dark Side. Yeah, and that's exactly it, yes. By uh, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. Some something like that. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's not easy to find that song. It, it's like one of those things where 
unless you were alive, you you may not believe that. You might think it's like a Mandela effect kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Eddie and the Cruises. Eddie and the Cruises was sort of like a ghost story of sorts. I remember at the end, mm-hmm. like Eddie's still there, even though he supposedly died like you know thirty years earlier or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah, Eddie and the Cruises, check it out. Pretty good movie. And then we have Louise Gluck. So this is this our first female uh, author that makes it into our little uh, exposition? Um, It might be. I think it might be, yeah. Besides you. Yeah, besides me. Um, so Louise Gluck just won the Nobel last year. Um, and uh, her, you know, she's written incredible poetry and... and this is the this is just one poem, but it's it's possibly my favorite poem, and it's a poem called Persephone the Wanderer, and it's a poem about Persephone's abduction, and um, it's just it's an it's an extraordinary poem. It's it's sort of sets up hell and rape um, as a as a metaphor for womanhood, and uh, it includes this line that's just great, which is you know what will you do when it is your turn in the field with the god, so. Ouch. I had to bring, I had to mention that poem because it's my possibly my favorite poem. Yeah, sounds um, sad uh, to the extreme. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna skip one because it's my favorite. But then we, we have here Clive Barker, who you know uh, famously did a lot of horror films, um, but also was a, an author. Uh, Mister Begon uh, was Hellraiser. Was that him? Mm-hmm. Hellraiser? Yeah, I mean... Just... Yeah, he's Hellraiser, yeah. Hellraiser. I mean, Clive Barker's Hell is basically a BDSM room where everyone's forgotten the safe word. You know, I mean, it's just... It's it's sexy hell. It's um, it's punishment as as pain and pleasure. Um, but there's no escape from that, so... Sounds a little bit like uh, Louise Glick's version as well. Uh, except, uh, except for... Um, Men and women alike, mm-hmm. um, or everyone. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, Although all, all the, the the LBGTQ Clive, Clive Barker, everyone's covered in Louise Glick. It's it's uh, I guess just for women. Um, sounds like a like a slogan for a commercial, just for women. Um, and then we have well, Carl Phillips. Also, it sounds like a sort of similar, uh, maybe like a. Uh, cousin adjacent to Clive Barker's version. Did I lose you for a second? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you know, before I was saying, Carl Phillips sounds like it's almost like a cousin, but you know, like an uh, adjacent to Clive Barker. That pleasure and pain as sex is a way of assuming power. I mean, it, these things seem to be uh, sort of uh, very similar on a um, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe a spectrum. Sure. I mean, they they approach the subject from different ways. Um, but this idea that for people um, who may have in the past been victimized or abused, have lost power in various ways, that sometimes one way of, of, of approaching that and owning that experience is by um, choosing to re-encounter that experience, but on your own terms. And I think that's, that's part of what Carl Phillips is writing about. I want to go back to Barker and to Hellraiser because that was the whole thing where you could go there and somehow you could escape. And they actually had this like crew of like bounty hunters that would 
mm-hmm. come and bring you back with, uh, as you said, with BDSM kinds of things like chains that would move and hook into you and, mm-hmm. and, and flying balls and, and mm-hmm. very, very goth. And, and yeah, what were, what were those guys called again? What was the crew? It's- Cenobites. The Cenobites. Yeah. Yeah. Which were, I mean, the Cenobites were a sect of religious people, um, ascetics in the very, very early stages of the Christian church. You people would go out and like to the desert and live in caves and, and call themselves Cenobites. And then they became these people in the, the Clive Barker novel. Sounds like hippies. Sort of. <laughs> wow. They brought a lot. I mean, the hippies brought a lot more drugs with them into the caves, I think, than the Cenobites did. Well, we, we don't know what Cenobites uh, lived on. <laughs> I mean, we don't know what they ate. Uh, we know what they chased. Um, but yeah, I, I love I love that movie, The Hellraiser. Uh, the whole series is pretty, well, not the whole series. Um, but yeah, and then I guess I want to go, I guess we'll go into my favorite with Hell as an actual geographic place sort of like the chinese version twelve thousand open vessels or mm-hmm. open containers but you know the whole hollow earth but the descent uh by jeff long not that old a book probably within the last 20 years um mm-hmm. and basically hell is a real place and and everything that goes bump in the night and all of our unexplained mysteries and everything that we're afraid of is explained by uh these lost tribes of of ancient humans who at some point went underground and because of certain things down there, you know, they got pale, they developed, they got calcified. So you'd see horns, some, you know, evolved in ways that they could get real claws for fingers and they could climb on the rocks and big eyes and mm-hmm. e- even gargoyle-like uh, and reptilian wings. So, but yeah, but I could go on forever about the descent, and I just wish the entire world would read it, and I wish that they would make a like a five year TV series about it. But uh, let's get your version of actual hell from somebody who knows how to convey these things in words, as opposed to me just bloviating about my love. Well, I, I think um, I mean the descent is um, more relevant today than than possibly even the time that it was written because it's the story of geography is destiny in a way it's um, you know where you live the the circumstances of the place where you live create your fate and the people who live under the earth are um, changed by the way that they have evolved in order to live under the earth and what I mean, we historically we would condemn people for being demons for living under the earth. We would assume that these are evil people, and in the descent, they're not. They're just people who went underground at some point in prehistory and have continued to live underground, and they've been changed by the status of living underground. And the people who live above ground are sort of challenged to come to grips with that. And it's, it's, it's no longer a story of good and evil, really. It's a story of, of competing cultures and we live above ground. So we would sympathize with the people who live above ground, but there are reasons to sympathize with the people who live below ground. Yep. And they had a very interesting concept of Satan as sort of a, transmitted consciousness the way that you know animals know how to migrate to certain areas from generation to generation or, or mating areas and you know almost like the dalai lama sort of you know it's a 
you know, there's not one Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama takes different bodies. So, um, yeah, exactly like that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought it was a really cool book. I'm glad that you liked it also and said that this it's extremely relevant because uh, I sometimes think I'm a little bit overly obsessed with a book that, that but let's face it, has not really got that that much acclaim. I mean, it got enough that they made sort of like a loosely, loosely, loosely based horror movie on it, which is actually pretty good. It was good enough to have a sequel, but isn't the same as the book. It just isn't. I was wondering about that. Is that movie, The Descent, with the, the women who go like into the cave and then they're like the, the pale creatures, is that actually loosely based on the book? Loosely, 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 loosely. Okay. Loosely. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's that far uh, away, but yeah, it is. Um, all right, so we had some others here. Now, one I was not familiar with at all, Ishmael Reed, which is a fabulous name. He said, I am a cowboy in the boat of Ra. So, I mean, everything there is fantastic. Well, it's a great poem. And Ishmael Reed is, is a great poet. Um, but this, I picked that poem because it's, it's an example of a way that hell can change um, it's, it's, it's not doing the same thing in our metaphors anymore. And the mythologies that Reed is, um, is using in this poem, he's kind of picking things, um, things that are relevant to his own, um, ancestral heritage as a black person. Um, so Egyptian mythology, um, African mythologies, um, and, but he's also just sort of talking about how, um, hell hell has come to stand for a sense of being other of being different in a lot of, i mean in a lot of ways it's, it shares some comparisons with the descent um but hell has become a place where we put things that we don't understand or agree with um and they don't necessarily deserve to be there very much the original story of lost also the others mm-hmm. And everybody was the others you know, until it went completely off the rails, I guess, because everyone figured out the plot, you know, by episode mm-hmm. four or five. And they're like, no, it's definitely not purgatory. And then it was like five but years later. It was later, definitely purgatory. Right, yeah. it was, five years later. Yeah, it was definitely purgatory. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, we lied. Our bad. With polar bears. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And an excellent cast. Um, and then a, another one of my favorites. I mean, not quite Descent level, but Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Love that book. Yeah, that's a great book. And I was so heartbroken when it didn't work out as a television series. (laughs) Yeah, the show wasn't bad, but it was really way stylized. And I understand, I just feel like they got, they got sidetracked by making it beautiful and visually stunning. And instead of just sticking to the story, which was cool enough in and of itself, um, uh, there were some choice. There were some strange choices there, but uh, yeah. But I digress. So Neil Gaiman, basically American Gods. For those who haven't read it or seen it, is that basically the the gods are given power by their worshippers, and uh, because America is this place where people have always come from somewhere else, no matter how long back you you go, somebody nobody started here, um, and uh, basically the. The gods are weaker in America because there's so many gods, um, but also there's different versions of them. So there's like like 30 different versions of Jesus, at least. Um, uh-huh. And as people's worship of them wanes, so do their powers. And then there's sort of like a war between the old gods and the new and the new. Well, it's technology. And, and you know, we've had guests on here like, like Leo Zagami, 
um, who've talked about, you know, how basically Antichrist is in technology, but, you know, the old ex dus machina, machina, you know, it's just the, the, the devils and the machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of like that. So, but uh, I may have skipped over hell there in, in my little expose. gods is is kind of the norse hell because the the central mythology at least that's playing out for shadow is is um nordic related his father is odin and you know so the hell that he experiences is kind of the nordic hell and I mean, there are all sorts of parallels between the story of odin who hung on a tree for three days and Christianity, obviously, as, uh, as other people have pointed out in the past. But um, I, to me, what's most interesting about a treatment of hell in American gods is the idea that if people stop paying attention to you, you no longer exist. Yeah. You know? uh, the metaphysical, but the human version of if a tree falls in the woods, but nobody hears it, did it fall? I guess again, our mm-hmm. our search for immortality, for relevance, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Wow! Now, now. I feel like I've just released, or I've just spoken a spoiler about American Gods, and now I'm terrified. I think you have to put a warning at the beginning of the show. Uh, the, uh, the warning is this show's about hell, so that, the, that, that that's right. My listeners don't read. Come on, no. <laughs> and and the show, I think it was canceled, or, or I don't, I, I don't even know. I, I don't think I have stars anymore, so I'm not even sure. But I haven't yeah. seen, I haven't seen it's like a, yeah, yeah, because I haven't canceled. seen a ton of ads for it. And I mean, that's something that you know, I would, I would see. What about Counterpart? That was another great show that was on Stars. Yeah, I didn't watch that one. Oh, that one was really good, but I think it was canceled too. Mm-hmm. Um, or it might just be on one of those COVID delays. We'll see. I mean, these are all things that may get me to get stars again. Uh, but American Gods being canceled, that's a big, that's a big against. All right. So then you have one more list, listed here, something I haven't heard of, a gentleman named Daniel Kelman or man. Yes. You should have left. German, German novelist. Um, if you haven't read You Should Have Left, please read it. Um, I don't want to give too much away about it. And I will also say that there is a version of it on Netflix right now starring Kevin Bacon. Read the book first. Um, but yeah. it's, it's called You Should Have Left? Yes. On Netflix? You Should Have Left. Okay. Um, and I, like I said, I don't want to give too much away because you really you, you have to experience it. But, well, uh, how about we do this? Spoiler alert for <laughs> You Should Have Left. Uh, if you don't want to hear, just, just keep scrolling until you hear me talk about films television now feel free to spoil away it is very much a a story about uh well it's about a haunted house in a way but this house um changes geographically depending on who's in it and um and people are are trapped by what they've done so so it's a it's about guilt it's about hell as being a place that we create by our, our, our guilt. Um, and it's about not being able to escape decisions that we have made in the past. Okay. Well, yeah, that, that's a big one. Guilt is uh, certainly something that looms large for most of us, um, unless you're a sociopath, uh, which no pejorative, I'm working towards sociopathy myself as, a, as my perfect state. Um, so now we go into films and television. 
And you listed a bunch here. I'm not even going to read them. I'm going to let you do it because it's very interesting what you chose and what you wrote next. So it's uh, I, I just want to, I want folks to hear it in your words, in your order. Well, I mean, lists, you know, any sort of list is always just a reflection of the, the listor um, and of their own biases and prejudices, um, as this is of mine. But just a, a couple of, of movies or TV shows that I think of when I think of hell as it is treated in media. Um, and uh, for me, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Bergman's Seventh Seal, which is not set in hell per se, um, but which is, but which involves the devil um, following around a knight who is traveling around Europe during the Middle Ages. Um, and it's classic Bergman, you know, it's very existential, it's very angsty. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, it's the idea of hell and death as being inevitable, of following you everywhere you go, of not being able to escape it, no matter how good or virtuous you might be, I guess. Well, that's cool. Is that is that the one with Demi Moore when she was young? Younger? There is, no, that's the... Oh, it's the seventh sign. That's, that's the seventh sign. That's the seventh sign, yes. But um, I, I made that mistake, I think, when I went to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, it wasn't that bad a movie. I mean, I'm sure it probably doesn't hold up. It's but not a terrible movie. It's, it's, it's um, interesting. It's not greatly done, but it's interesting. There's, there's a yeah. great story in there. There was a period of time in the late 80s, early 90s, where Hollywood was making a lot of these possession um, revelations, end of days movies. Schwarzenegger was in one of them. Um, and Seventh Sign was one of those movies. Yep. And I think that has the, the famous Demi Moore haircut in it, too. So It does have, yeah, she definitely has short hair in this one. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. All right, so what else we have there? Um, Event Horizon, which is a sci-fi film that I think does not get the credit or the acknowledgement that it really deserves. Um, when it came out, I think nobody quite knew what to do with it. It's a very philosophy-laden film. Um, it's got a great cast. Sam Neill is the, the captain of this ship that is exploring the far limits of the universe. And I think Lawrence Fishburne is in it. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's a creepy film. It's a little bit, um, Kubrick-esque. Um, it's maybe, um, a little too smart for its own good in places, but there's a black hole and the black hole is kind of hell. Yeah, no, the, I, yeah, I thought Event Horizon was actually another underrated movie i have to admit i never put them together as hell um which i guess looking back makes me feel sort of dumb not at all i mean i, I think it's it's open to interpretation as lots of good movies are but there's something malicious on the other side of that black hole yes and there's also there's a very purgatory field of, for them being in that spaceship and uh, that vessel and sort of not being able to control their own destiny the, yeah. the, the sort of like a bleakness that reminds me almost of like there was an Arctic film uh, or book called The Terror, which they made into a TV show as well, which is actually pretty good. But yeah, stay... I liked The Terror. The Terror was good. The yeah. first one. Yes. I didn't love the, the second season. 
I liked the second one, but it was very different. It was a very different thing. Um, and I hope they continue with it, sort of like Fargo with those anthologies. Anyway, there's the Arctic in space, I guess the ocean. It's it's all sort of like there's like almost no escape. You're you're basically alone and isolated kind of thing mm-hmm. and helpless. All right, so we have Event Horizon. Uh, where else did you go with this? I, you know, the, well, you, one of the things you picked was Hellboy, which I thought was great. That sort of took me from a little loop. I mean, it's obvious, but it's yeah. sort of less serious. Yeah, well, I mean, Hellbill, Hell, Hellboy is fun. Hellboy is is um, the, just from, a, the original. A completely, yeah, well, it's a completely rethinking of if you come from hell, do you have to be evil? Do you have to be a bad guy, or can you make yourself what you want to be? It's the anti-noir hell. You can't escape the the gravity of your of your choices or your circumstances in life, as proven by Satan's own son, mm-hmm. who was a demi Satan, I guess, a, de- a demi demon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, Satan, Satan having children there, I, I that that might have been a new concept too. I don't know that Satan had children previously in any in any major work. Well, something is happening to the devil in culture nowadays you know i mean we have something like a sexy devil um a devil who is who seems like he represents us we we want to we 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 um we feel more connected to the devil and his imperfections maybe um than we do to somebody who is more all-powerful all-perfect he's more relatable Mm-hmm. He's more relatable. We're all about relatability these days, uh, you know. So, devil is just God who didn't have you know great parents or something. I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> lives lives uh, had a troubled upbringing. Um, all right. So what? And what? What else do we have on that list? I mean, I lost was not yeah. on there, but I brought it up. Yeah, I mean, you have to mention American Horror Story. I think um, it's not clear what ultimately the the story arc for American Horror Story is going to be, but we know that um, we've been told at least that these stories are all interrelated, interconnected, and there have been like little connection points between certain of the stories, characters that come in and come back out. They get, they get explained in different seasons, and the thinking, anyway, the, the cultural thinking is that this is going to turn out to be the nine circles of hell from the Inferno in each oh. one of these seasons. Very cool. So all of those seasons are hell. I, I thought that maybe there were particular seasons. I haven't watched American Horror Story religiously, and I've, I'm watching something called Double Feature, which I, I guess is sort of a, a side dish, its own little standalone, not exactly in the American Horror Story universe, though I couldn't be sure about that. But uh, No, I think it's in the universe, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, are there any seasons in particular we should watch, or do you just have to watch it all to figure this out? Well, they're standalone seasons, so you don't have to watch any one in order to kind of get the most out of that season. But for someone who wanted to sort of dip their toe into American Horror Story, I would say the first season, which is Murder House, um, and maybe um, Coven, which I think is the third season. Um, And... um, Hotel is pretty good, which is the the Lady Gaga season. Um, so the current are, one, I think, is pretty good. So which one? I'm sorry. The current one, which oh. is Double Feature. Okay, yeah, no, I like Double Feature. So none of them are expressly about hell, but it may turn out that they're all expressly about hell when it all exactly. All but they're all sort of taking place inside hell in some way. I could see that. 
I could, I could, mm-hmm. I could see that. But yeah, but uh, double feature. If you haven't watched any other American horror stories, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to watch, and I mean, it, it, it takes nothing. If, if you've heard any conspiracy theories whatsoever, it's, you know, if, if, if you've lived to be twenty five, you, you can dive in, and, you know, if it's a new. Okay, so, what else? You had a couple of other interesting ones on that list, also. Aliens, I think we have to talk about because. Um... You know, maybe the most frightening thing about hell is the idea that you can't escape it, um, that you are doomed to that forever, and that you're there alone. And Alien or aliens? Aliens, for me, although obviously, I mean, it's the same sort of storyline, so either way, in that universe, I think part of what's happening is the fear that we, that we have about... Um, being out in the middle of this place, this unexplored place, being abandoned there, being able to escape from there, and then being tormented by these by these awful creatures who do terrible things to our bodies. Ghosts of Mars was sort of also, I mean, it's not as good as Aliens, but it's a similar thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A- aliens, oh, but I, I, I thought more about Alien as hell, you know, sort of a bleak and inescapable. Aliens was almost the... You know, it's like you, you almost had a chance in the, in the aliens. Well, they get out. But yeah. yeah. Well, one gets... Spoiler. Two, two get out of... Well, spoilers <laughs> from the 1970s and 80s. Ripley lives. Yeah. <laughs> Pro- probably no surprise since there's been about 12 sequels, but uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, spoiler alert, uh, late, too late. All right. Well, very, very good. Any uh, observations or conclusions about hell that the audience should take in case they wanted to visit hell or any travel agents or anything like that? Oh gosh, travel agents. I mean, I guess decide what are we? What do we think hell is at this point? Um, because I, I think our conception of hell is pulling away from this idea of being this evil place where you go to get punished, and is becoming something else. And I think as uh, as a society, we're kind of reckoning with a lot of um, of redefining things, redefining things that we thought were kind of set in stone, and the idea of hell is is one of them and well lucky enough for us with the multiverse and the uh the sort of the mainstream thought that there's many dimensions it's a false choice when you've got infinite choices hell, mm-hmm. one of those places is exactly the hell that you think it is so we are yeah, retconning hell that's right we're retconning hell and with that <laughs> jennifer sutherland thank you very much tell the folks where they can read your work and where they can follow you and, and anything else that you want to promote about yourself uh, well, if you Google me, you'll find my website, which will take you to some links to my work. Um, you'll find me in literary journals like the Denver Quarterly, um, and like I said, in Best New Poets 2021, which should be in bookstores in December. Very good. Folks, if you Google me, I'm going to slap you. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, all right. Thanks again for coming into the garden. And we're going to be talking about Lilith. We'll book it, but don't worry. It probably won't be for another six months or so. So I, I, I give everyone a break. Okay. But you'll, Excellent. Yeah, you'll be one of our one of our featured uh, return guests. We have we, we have like a little family of people who do two, three, who knows how many shows. I mean, it's only been 70. So, you know, if, if you've done two or three already, that that's a thing. So... All right, the Garden of Doom family. You, you name a tree after you or something. All right. So, all right. Thank you, everyone. Happy Halloween. Hopefully uh, you've been safe. Hopefully you had a cool costume. Um, and nobody accused you of cosplaying because it's not cosplaying on Halloween. It's just getting dressed. Stay evil, my friends.
Bye. All right, folks, we just hung up with Jennifer, and next week we're going to start our UFO month, so tune in for that. Thanks again for tuning into the Garden of Doom.